Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 376 of the Bowery Boys. Skid Row. Life on the Bowery. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Now, we hope you listen all the way to the end of the show this week, because we have a very special announcement. We're launching a spinoff. Oh, I just blew the secret, but we're (laughs) going to talk about it at the end of the show. Okay, today we are headed to the Bowery. If we were, of course, to literally head over to the Bowery right now, we would find many vestiges of its history going back as far as the 19th century, Mm -hmm. overshadowed by gorgeous new hotels, luxury apartment buildings, and glamorous boutiques and galleries. This is the Bowery of today. Fully aware of its punk rock ghosts with big, colorful walls of graffiti, which one can enjoy while sipping upon an $8 cup of coffee. $8? $8? Really? <laughs> um, I found a place where you can get coffee for just six fifty. <laughs> I'm going to take you there. Oh, wow. What a bargain basement price. <laughs> well, maybe we're laying it on a bit thick here, but it's true. The Bowery, or most of the Bowery, has definitely changed since the years of CBGB and the Ramones. But today, we're actually going back in time further than the punk years, to a time when the Bowery was lined with an elevated railroad that cast shadows down onto the street. And it was a time when the Bowery was mainly associated with poverty, alcoholism, and homelessness. From the moment that the elevated train went up in 1878, the Bowery became a street of deteriorating fortunes. And by the 1940s, things had gotten so bad that the Bowery had taken on the nickname Skid Row. For decades, the Bowery became the last resort for men who were down on their luck. They filled the flop houses and the cheap gin mills. For most of the people who found themselves here, these were not at all the, quote, good old days. The only thing holding the Bowery back from total ruin were the rescue missions, which began sprouting up here in the late 19th century, providing food and shelter for tens of thousands of people. The most renowned of these places was the Bowery Mission, which was founded in 1879 and is still, believe it or not, on the Bowery, performing pretty much the same function as it did 140 years ago. So today we'll take you through a century of Bowery history, 
from the good times to the desperate times. And then we're actually going to head to the Bowery ourselves. Yes, the Bowery boys are going to actually record on the Bowery. I think this is a first. Yeah, (laughs) it it is. Surprisingly, we're going to be recording from the Bowery mission. We'll pay a visit to Jason Storbakken, who is the mission's senior manager of spiritual formation. And we'll learn about the mission's current role on the Bowery. Because even though it's currently located just a couple doors down from a hot new museum... It doesn't mean that their mission has changed. We hope that you'll think differently about the Bowery and New York City in general after listening to this show, because the issues that the people of the street faced in the mid-20th century are still very much with us. So join us as we take a trip to the Bowery in the days of Skid Row. I was standing down in New York town one day Standing down in New York town one day I was standing down in New York town one day Singing hey, 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 hey I was broke, I didn't have a dime I was broke, I didn't have a dime Yes sir, I was broke, I didn't so then today's show is all about the Bowery. We've established that already, but we've talked about the Bowery in many different shows and discussed how it has served New York over many different eras. Mm-hmm. Where are we starting today's discussion of the Bowery? Well, we're going to start in the early 19th century. Now, the Bowery, of course, was the old farm road back in Dutch New Amsterdam, right? Literally meaning farm road. Exactly. But by the early 19th century, the Bowery had actually become one of the most urban places in the entire United States. As New York grew north and the population swelled throughout the decades with newly arriving immigrants, the Bowery became an entertainment destination, at times actually hosting several distinguished theaters and even a few fine residences up on the northern end of the Bowery. But by the time of the Civil War, fashionable New York had moved uptown, of course, and the Bowery became more of a working class recreational district with, you know, dime museums and concert saloons. So popular entertainment. Yes, popular entertainment. For the masses. Mm -hmm. But also it was a stomping ground of, you know... Hooligans and street ruffians, like that gang of ruffians with whom we share a name. Yes, the original Bowery Boys. But the Bowery also separated two rather distinctive immigrant communities, right? You had the the five points just to the south or southwest of the base of the Bowery, and then the Lower East Side off to its east side. And for that matter, you even had Greenwich Village stretching just west of the Bowery. In many ways, It was a crossroads where different people could come and interact with each other, either at a beer hall, a boxing match, or a basement brothel. At least that was its reputation. But in other ways, it was already in a crisis humanitarian state. To quote from the author Stephen Paul DeVillo in his History of the Bowery, quote, By the time of the Civil War, the lower end of the Bowery was engulfed in slums, and the area was already acquiring a reputation as a place of the unfortunate. 
Right. It wasn't all just fun and games and, and nights at the theater because the living quarters around this area were among the absolute worst in the city. Yeah, the tenements and the boarding houses. And of course, these would even give rise eventually to low quality lodging houses or what would become known in the 20th century as flop houses, where a wayward traveler or a person without a regular home could rent a bed for just a few cents. By the 1870s, there were a great number of these flop houses concentrated along the southern point of the Bowery around Chatham Square. These would be very grim, unsanitary, and dangerous places for a person to find themselves in. So this is already pretty grim, but it gets even worse. The elevated railroad, as many of our listeners may already know, was the mass transit precursor to today's subway. Ultimately, four different elevated railroad lines that ran up the course of Manhattan. And for the most part, they, you know, they were a good thing for the city. They allowed the city to sort of stretch out, right? And for people to settle in northern parts of the city and still work downtown. They gave birth to convenient commuting but on the street level, these things were actually quite dark and filthy and generally decreased the property values of those homes and businesses that just happened to be caught underneath their shadow. And that's precisely what happened when the Third Avenue elevated was placed along the entire length of the Bowery. So it linked up actually with the part that went on Third Avenue. Oh, right. It's confusing because Third kind of kicks off at Astor Place. So it actually goes all the way up the Bowery to Third Avenue. Yes. It opened here in 1878. Now, business owners saw what was coming and they did try to fight its construction and were really quite vocal about it, actually, but to no avail. So these elevated trains took what was already kind of a messy situation and by their very nature, they introduced smoke and soot and dropped ash on the whole scene. But I'd imagine that this wouldn't drive away all of the businesses. Some businesses might have liked operating in the shadows. The elevated actually compounded vice industries along the Bowery because you had respectable businesses that fled the neighborhood. You had more shadowy corners that were harder to police. Then you had the invention of electric light, which arrived on the Bowery in the 1880s. And that allowed all of these establishments that did remain, it allowed them to stay open later. Mm. So soon it became a district almost exclusively in the service of vice. Places of even greater ill repute than what had been here just a couple decades before. In many ways, this made it more of a destination for people outside of the district looking for a fun night on the town. But these temptations, of course, only made it more difficult for those who couldn't escape it. And all of that is happening by the 1890s when the Bowery is actually slicing north, bifurcating two of the most densely populated mm -hmm. neighborhoods in the world. Yeah, you had thousands of Italian and Chinese immigrants to the West. Then you had Russian and Eastern European immigrants to the East. Many who could not find homes or jobs in those places often ended up on the Bowery. There's actually a contradictory aspect to many of these disreputable saloons and dives. From the flashy dive bar of Steve Brody down on 114 Bowery up to the notorious McGurk Suicide Hall at 295 Bowery, 
these places drew patrons because of their vice, yet they would also take care of their patrons in many ways, with many of them having back rooms where people could sleep off their booze, for instance. And many of these proprietors felt a responsibility to take care of those in the most distressed situations, because, of course, doing so kept the police away. Yeah, and if you were a saloon owner, you certainly didn't want the police around. No, I mean, you could be shut down instantly. But then on top of all of these dive bars and saloons, and there were brothels and dime museums and arcades and such, the Bowery also attracted thousands of people who were truly down on their luck, people who suffered greatly from alcoholism, men, women, and even children who suffered from homelessness. There was so much homelessness throughout the city by the late 19th century in these poor neighborhoods that really nothing the city could do was even remotely adequate. Although during this era, you could get people to sympathize with the plights of homeless children and often with the situations of homeless women, it was harder to pay heed to the plight of homeless men and those in need of medical attention who were frequenting these Bowery dives. From an unsympathetic social standpoint in the late 19th century, these men were considered morally defective. From an official perspective in the 19th century, the state of people on the Bowery who were alcoholics or without a home just brought it on themselves due to moral failing. But there were some New Yorkers who were trying to help out. Yes, There were aid societies and religious charity organizations that had been active throughout the 19th century, helping feed and clothe and and also, we should note, convert poor New Yorkers. And, you know, as a method of care, I mean, this was a major drawback if you were Jewish or from another religion or, or you just didn't want to be converted. This would sometimes present a roadblock to the care that people really needed to have. So early efforts were sort of directed at the Five Points area. Okay, the Five Points House of Industry, for example, was formed in the 1850s. It was operated by a Methodist clergyman named Louis Pease, located in the midst of Five Points lawlessness, right? He he focused his organization on helping women learn skills and get jobs, but also provided a school for children and much more. And that house of industry, along with other missionary work, would exist in the Five Points neighborhood for decades. I mean, just in the middle of all of that Five Points pandemonium chaos over here, like in the heart of it. Yes. And so then just a few decades later, it's not really surprising that missionary work and outreach would then stretch a bit farther north to that other thoroughfare of quote unquote vice, the Bowery. And there had been other reformers who were already crawling along the Bowery in the mid-19th century, including Anthony Comstock, who was an anti-vice activist and had actually created the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice in, in 1873. He was targeting places like the Bowery. He was cracking down on vendors who sold dirty pictures. He was busting saloons and things like that and sort of dirty dime museums. Mm-hmm. And this is also the era of Dr. Parkhurst, right. uh, who, you know, on his own crusade, went through the city, cracking down on gambling dens and brothels. He sampled some of those brothels himself. <laughs> he did. He had to collect some evidence. <laughs> he did that in 1892. And we did a show on that, number 355, The Midnight Adventures of Dr. Parkhurst. 
so that's all happening. But then meanwhile, there were reformers who wanted to help and were actually living on the Bowery and operating down on the Bowery trying to help people out. One of these, one of the first, was the Bowery Mission, which was created on November 7th, 1879, when a group of men and women met at 14 Bowery. And according to the mission's history, written by Jason Storbakken, who we'll meet in a moment, though few in number, they were strong in purpose as they prayed for the souls trapped in poverty and sin. And how was the Bowery Mission founded? Well, it was led by the Reverend Albert Rulofson, who had served as a chaplain in the Union Army during the Civil War. Afterward, he had, he had served as a Presbyterian minister in Minnesota, then moved to Chicago, and finally to New York in the 1870s, where he and his wife Ellen became involved in various reform movements, including fighting gambling and prostitution and alcoholism. This then led him to link up with another missionary, Jeremiah McCauley, who operated a soup kitchen and a mission down on Water Street. And so then soon, the Rolofsons were launching the Bowery Mission. 14 Bowery, and that is really at the southern end of the Bowery. Yes, between Doyers and Pell. The mission would move a number of times, however. And I love the summary of the immediate neighborhood at the time that the mission was formed. Uh, Storbakken includes this in his book. It was written by Owen Kildare, who was born on the Lower East Side in 1864. And he describes the area around that first mission in the 1870s like this. In that one block between Chatham Square to Bayard Street were eight concert halls, five gambling houses, four fake museums, blinds for lottery schemes or indecent exhibitions, seven saloons, not one of them conducted legitimately, nine hotels of the rankest sort, five lodging houses ranging in price from 25 to 7 cents, and on the adjoining block in Bayard Street, every house without exception was a den of ill repute. In addition, it must be mentioned that the Wyo Gang, the Cherry Hill Gang, and the Five Points Gang had their headquarters there, and sometimes worked in concert to the discomfort of peaceful citizens, and again, fought their battles in pitched array to the bodily injury of inoffensive non-participants. All of that on one block. That's a lot of opportunity for, for missionaries <laughs> looking for something to do. Almost nothing but opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> It's not then a surprise that the Bowery Mission expanded into other nearby buildings, offering cheap meals, and, and then jumped up a few blocks in 1885 to operate out of a former saloon at 105 Bowery between Hester and Grand. There, that five-story building included a first-floor chapel and four floors of dormitories. And on March 13, 1898, a terrible tragedy occurred at the Bowery Mission when a late-night fire swept through the building, killing 11 people, including many who had come to the mission for shelter. As a result of this horrible event, the mission then had to move around to temporary homes for several years until eventually settling into a new home at 227 Bowery in November of 1909. Um, and that is where they still are today. And there they'd offer religious services to those suffering from homelessness and alcoholism who were drifting by their door and served up to three meals a day. And every night at 1 a.m., hundreds would line up outside the door for free coffee and bread, just something to sustain them before trying to find a place to sleep. 
And these were but one of several rescue missions that were headquartered on the street. There were several other missions, soup kitchens, shelters as well. Uh, The Salvation Army um, had arrived in New York in 1880. They had set up a Bowery mission in 1890. There was a new YMCA that had been constructed in a beautiful red brick building at 222 Bowery, which had opened in 1885 as the Young Men's Institute. Its mission was slightly different in that it was trying to elevate the local population, right? Offering a library and and dining room and recreational opportunities for the men. But despite all this, by the end of the 19th century, the neighborhood just kept struggling. What's really striking is if you can just imagine just looking what a typical block might have been like on the Bowery, it would have been House of Vice right next to a place where they were trying to rescue people from the House of Vice, essentially, right? Yeah, it made quite a juxtaposition. As the author Alice Sparberg Alexu points out in her excellent book, Devil's Mile, The Rich, Gritty History of the Bowery, quote, missions on the Bowery filled a big, glaring hole. It was the only main thoroughfare in New York with no churches. It was as if respectable forms of worship had deliberately sidestepped Satan's highway. And there were so many different types of missions. She continues, quote, Bowery missions ran the gamut from big operations like the YMCA and Salvation Army to little storefronts started by any crackpot who wanted to. These included places like the All Night Mission at 8 Bowery and the Hadley Rescue Hall, which was a Methodist mission that opened in 1902 at 291 Bowery, which had actually it opened in a building that had once been part of McGurk Suicide Hall. One of the most notorious saloons of the late 19th century then flipped, essentially, (laughs) and turned into a mission. Yeah, quite ironic. And there would be at least 10 missions operating on the Bowery by the 1920s. But if you were looking for a place to sleep, you didn't need to go to a mission because, as you mentioned, there were also all of these flop houses, super cheap nightly hotels that didn't have any, you know, religious strings attached, if you will. Kenneth Jackson in the Encyclopedia of New York City estimates that in 1907, the nightly population in all the missions and shelters and flop houses on the Bowery was about 25,000. That gives you an idea of the number of people needing a place to sleep under this train as it was rumbling by. Right, under the, the shadow of the elevated, a shadow that only grew larger, actually, because in 1915, the city added two more tracks to the elevated. Now, the original tracks had been above the sidewalks, okay, one going uptown, one going downtown, which at least it let a little bit of sunlight come down onto the middle of the street. But by the 19-teens, that train, those trains had become too overcrowded, and they needed to add express service, which required adding two more tracks and moving the whole shebang over the street, basically blocking all sunlight you know, from hitting the sidewalk. So as this population of, of mostly men drifted from the saloon to the mission house to the flop house, they did it all in the shadows. And unfortunately... Things were about to get even worse for the neighborhood in 1920. We'll get to Prohibition on the Bowery after this. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? 
In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Never coming back to this man's town again. Never coming back to this man's town again. Never coming back to this man's town again. Singing hey, 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 hey. The Volstead Act went into effect nationally on January 17th, 1920. Prohibition was in town. And the effect on the Bowery in particular was very drastic. You know, once there had been an estimated 100 saloons along the Bowery, under the elevated, and now all of those saloons were closed. For the so-called Bowery bums, this made life much worse. Because these establishments had kept men off the street. You know, they could keep personal possessions in such places. They could network. They made friends. They could even find out about jobs. But now all these places were closed, essentially leaving only the missions as their primary place of refuge. Well, hold on. They were, these saloons were officially closed. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, this was New York during Prohibition. This city was packed with speakeasies and illegal liquor establishments. I can't imagine that you couldn't get booze on the Bowery. Oh, no. Booze was still here. And these speakeasies were everywhere. But the price was jacked up, and most of those who lived off the street or in these flop houses could only afford to buy the cheapest and most dangerous kinds of liquor, including wood alcohol, which was essentially poison. Mm. It made you very, very sick. These were sometimes called shock houses. They were frequently busted, of course, but you know you couldn't really clamp down on this problem until prohibition was over. So these were not flashy midtown speakeasies. No, no, there was no Texas Guinan in any of these places. Right. And so prohibition didn't make the problem go away here. And this likely meant that the burden then fell onto the missions and the soup kitchens and the shelters. You know, after some initial optimism at the start of prohibition, it felt like people were getting off the Bowery. After just a few years, the homeless and the unemployed only seemed to come back in greater numbers, especially in the winter when, you know, many were unable to find work. From a New York Times article from February 13th, 1928, the headline declares, Breadlines longest since 1916. Quote, 
Superintendents of the missions said that during the past few months, breadlines that had been discontinued for years had had to be revived, and free sleeping quarters, found to be unnecessary after the war, again were opened. And that article was from 1928? Mm-hmm. During the, quote, Roaring Twenties. Yes. So if that's what was happening in the late Twenties, what in the world was happening a few years later during the Depression? This was certainly an emergency, one that, of course, the whole country was facing. But the problems really became concentrated here on the Bowery. So Prohibition was gone by 1933, but the saloons and the other businesses that did return to the Bowery were a little different. They were filled with the men who were on the Bowery already, you know, many heavy drinkers and even alcoholics, the most desperate people without family or support, outsiders who visited the neighborhood, either as mission workers or just passing through had all sorts of names for what the Bowery had now become. The social worker Eugene Bertram Williams described the Bowery as, quote, this strange street, America's premier highway of human wreckage. Another nickname that pops up at this time, the Boulevard of the Forgotten. Then you have this 1941 newsreel called This is the Bowery, painting a very stark picture of this area during the Depression. New York City is a young giant, towering up as one of the last free metropolises on Earth. A place built by good men, wise men, and bad men. But all of them strong, tough, and clever. Where then are the ones who are not strong? They are on the rubbish heap. Every proud city has one. In Frisco, we called it Barbary Coast. In London, the Limehouse. In Algiers, the Casper. And in New York, the Bowery. This is where they sold your cast-off shotgun. And this is where you hocked your war medal for three square meals and a bottle of bourbon. Cast-off fads, cast-off shoes, cast-off clothes. And on a single street exactly one mile long, 20,000 cast-off men. But the name which stuck and lingered upon the Bowery for over 40 years, Skid Row. Skid Row, as in on the skids. Mm -hmm. And there are many different Skid Rows across the country in in large cities. And these are are usually neighborhoods that are characterized by a high concentration of vagrancy. Yeah. But during this period, during the Depression, were there any other reasons to come to the, the Bowery? Well, remember I said earlier that Prohibition had actually shut down a bunch of old saloons? Well, by the 1930s, many of those old storefronts were now occupied with businesses in the restaurant supply business and in the lighting business. Some of these still exist today. You still find some light stores and and restaurant supply shops. You've got meat slicers on the sidewalk still (laughs) today. I mean, it's it's an interesting kind of subplot to the Bowery that this happens around this time. And you can still find it on the Bowery today. The other businesses which managed to survive on the Bowery were those that naturally served working class men. Businesses you would not exactly find on Fifth Avenue, let's just say. Places like pawn shops barber shops, tattoo parlors, used clothing stores, and the greasiest of greasy spoon diners. 
But Manhattan's Bowery was known across the country Mm -hmm. for being this sort of magnet uh, for those who were down on their luck. And it was well known because there was actually so much written about it at the time, which is very interesting. One of the most famous observers of this distressed area was New Yorker writer Joseph Mitchell. Now, among the figures that he profiled along the Bowery in his writing was a was a man nicknamed Professor Siegel, although his real name was Joe Gould. Immortalized in Mitchell's book, Joe Gould's Secrets. Right. I mean, a classic and based on Mitchell's New Yorker profiles. However, I want to focus on a piece that he wrote in 1940 about a woman named Maisie Gordon, known as the Queen of the Bowery. She wasn't living on the Bowery. She was actually employed at a Bowery movie theater, of which there were many at this time, offering another way in which men could get off the street. To quote from Joseph Mitchell, A bossy, yellow-haired blonde named Maisie P. Gordon is a celebrity on the Bowery. In the Nicola Drink saloons and in the all-night restaurants which specialize in pig snouts and cabbage at a dime a platter, she is known by her first name. Maisie has presided for 21 years over the ticket cage of the Venice Theater. The Venice is a small, seedy moving picture theater which opens at 8 a.m. and closes at midnight. It is a dime house. On the Bowery, cheap movies rank just below cheap alcohol as an escape, and most bums are movie fans. Many stiffs habitually go into the Venice early in the day and slumber in their seats until they are driven out at midnight. Quote, Some days I don't know which this is, a movie picture theater or a flop house, Maisie once remarked. Most nights before going to bed, which is usually around 2 o'clock, Maisie makes brief stops in several saloons and all-night restaurants. She does not mind the reek of stale beer, greasy cabbage, and disinfectant in them. Quote, After you've been around the Bowery a few years, your nose gets wore out, she says. She goes into these places not to eat or drink, but to gossip with bartenders and countermen and to listen to the conversation of drunken bums. She has found that bums do not talk much about sex, sports, politics, or business, the normal saloon topics. She says most of them are far too undernourished to have any interest in sex. They talk instead about what big shots they were before they hit the Bowery. Although their stories fascinate her, Maisie is generally cynical. To hear them tell it, she says, all the bums on the Bowery were knocking off millions down on Wall Street when they were young, else they were senators, else they were the general manager of something real big, but poor fellers, the most of them, they wasn't ever nothing but drunks. So that's Maisie's take mm-hmm. on who these men were. Yes. Do we know anything more specific about them? By the 1930s and 40s, who were these men? Many of them were seasonal workers who left New York for jobs on the railroad or fruit picking, then came back to the Bowery during winter months. So these weren't men who were out of work. They just did not have a permanent place of residence. Mm -hmm. Then you had the hobos, a group of transients who traveled the country via the railroad, going from one skid row destination to another. The hobos. They referred to each other as hobos. Yes. The word hobo just conjures up an image, you know, today. Maybe it's from films. 
of a kind of loner who's hopping on a freight car. But, but here on the Bowery, they could find a community, a community of hobos. This was actually an important stop for that community during the Great Depression and, the, and even afterwards. Nationally, it's estimated that there were over half a million people within this loose-knit hobo community by 1910. And of course, there would be a greater number by the Great Depression. The life of the hobo wasn't necessarily a desperate one. You know, some men chose this way of life. In fact, writers like Jack London even romanticized the hobo way of living. But it could be very lonely, which is why the Bowery became a very important spot for them. The saloons, the flop houses, and the various businesses here were all used to dealing with transient men. There was even a newspaper called the Bowery News, which was a hobo publication that served as a guide to places that were friendly to their scene. Its publisher, Harry Baronian, said of the paper's debut, quote, We got to do something to preserve the honest character of the Bowery. Some folks we know down there are acting as bad as if they lived in cafe society, and this paper is going to tell them about it. Wow, so the, so the hobo population here is protecting the honest character of the Bowery. Yeah, like a code of conduct among some members of the hobo community here. Of course, there were many men outside of the hobo community that were making the Bowery their primary destination. And in a constant haze of cheap booze or rot gut, which was the hard stuff, many of these men were frequently victims of crime from others on the Bowery, robbed of their possessions or their meager collections from panhandling. It was impossible to accurately guess the ages of so many of these men because the conditions of their lives made them look so old and haggard. In 1961, two New York University students, Alan Raymond and Dan Hallis, came to the Bowery and made a short film about some asking them how they ended up on Skid Row. A film called How Do You Like the Bowery? The Bowery comes along with a certain extent the people that's uh, down depressed, people that lose their wives, children, and mothers and fathers. I've been in the Bowery 14 years. I, I was working uh, nine years in a place, and my wife got killed with a car, and that's why I'm down here. Well, how do you like it here? Well, I don't really like it, but misery likes company. And so we're down here, and if we were somewhere else, we'd be so lonesome, we'd disnackly wander down here anyway. I make it off one of these days, but I work off, I always come back here. Isn't that funny? Why is that? I don't know, I guess misery likes company or something. Come on, get out of the way. Here's my buddy. See? See? No, I'll raise you. See, I'm not stupid for my conversation, you know. So you meet a guy, a misery loves company. Yeah. And shake hands with misery. The only reason why I'm down here right now is because I had a slight injury two years ago, paralyzed half my arm and my hands. As a result of this, I can't do too much work. I've been trying to, uh, you know, get some work, but every time I apply for a job, they say I'm handicapped and they won't hire me. Misery loves company. It's interesting, you know, in doing the research for this show, how well documented the scene is mm-hmm. here on the Bowery. It had really gained notoriety. 
Yeah, there was certainly a type of fascination with this scene in the 40s and 50s, sometimes verging on the perverse, as with tour bus companies who would roll through the Bowery to allow people to gawk at the misfortunes of those on the Bowery. Now, fortunately, there were journalists who took the people of Skid Row seriously, such as Joseph Mitchell, and photographers also, such as the freelancer Arthur Fellig, who published photographs under the name Ouija. In fact, a very infamous Bowery haunt was made famous in a series of photographs for Life magazine by Ouija, a notorious dive bar at 267 Bowery called Sammy's Bowery Follies. Follies? Well, this has taken an unexpectedly musical theater twist. Well, I think this was more ironic. This was no Ziegfeld, needless to say. From Life magazine, quote, From 8 in the morning to 4 the next morning, Sammy's is an alcoholic haven for the derelicts whose presence has made the Bowery a universal symbol of poverty and futility. It is also a popular stopping point for prosperous people from uptown who like to see how the other half staggers, unquote. Mm. And thus continuing that distasteful tradition of slumming it that occurred in Five Points and then continued on 100 years later here on the Bowery. Mm Mm-hmm. By the way, another interesting cultural artifact from this period is the 1956 documentary, in quotes, uh, a film called On the Bowery, directed by Lionel Rogeson. Now, I say in quotes because it's kind of a mixture of real, raw filmmaking on the Bowery, but definitely in a story that is has been constructed. Docu-fiction? Is that what- Docu-fiction, yes. And it was shot on location, so it's a great chance to actually see and hear the Bowery in the mid-1950s. Hello, Ray. Hello, Gorman. How are you? Oh, fair. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. What are you doing today? Anything? Oh, I was lucky today, Gorman. I was up on the corner, got yeah. a job on a truck, made a few dollars. I can think of a whole lot more pleasant ways to make a buck than working. Well, that's the only way I know how to make it. How about a drink? A drink? Sure. Oh, no, I'm sitting here drinking this. I I don't care for a drink. Well, what are you going to do tonight? One of the guys was telling me that the Bowery Mission opens up here about 6.30, 6, something like that. The fella can go down there and wash and shave. Get himself cleaned up, and attend service, and then they'll give him a place to sleep. I figured I'd go down there and do that. You know, it would keep me out of out of the gin mills, because I don't want to drink anymore. One interesting side note about that movie, Tom, is that you don't actually hear the rumble of the elevated train at all through right. the whole movie because it had actually ceased operation. That's right. Yeah, the Third Avenue Elevated had stopped running um, and was actually being dismantled when Rogerson was was shooting on the Bowery. So that when the entire elevated was removed and dismantled, the Bowery would be without elevated tracks blocking the sunlight for the first time in about 80 years. What an unheard of thing on the Bowery. Sunlight on the sidewalks. Although that might have shined some light on, you know... A pretty bleak scene. Some unsavory things. Yeah. But something surprising happens here at the Bowery. Beginning in the 1970s, the population of the Bowery 
actually decreases at this time. Yes, as Kenneth Jackson points out in the Encyclopedia of New York City, after 1970, the neighborhood's homeless population sharply declined as New York City, as he put it, dispersed its indigent to other neighborhoods. Which is not to say that there weren't any homeless people on the Bowery. In fact, the population was just changing due to a number of different factors, due to cuts to mental health services in the city by New York State that resulted in people who were needing mental health services being just thrown out onto the streets. Furthermore, in the 1980s, the Reagan administration cut federal housing funds. All of this led to an uptick, as Alice Sparberg Alexiou wrote, quote, on the Bowery, the numbers of homeless men declining for years now increased, and the flop houses, which had been losing business, were once again full, used by the city to house the overflow from the men's shelter around the corner on 3rd Street. But, she writes, these were a different kind of homeless, drug-addicted and young, some black or Hispanic. Formerly, the Bowery's population had been overwhelmingly white. And this new population then, in turn, made the old-timers, quote-unquote, rather uncomfortable, leading many of them to actually flee to other neighborhoods in the city. And meanwhile, just backing up here, as the neighborhood was going through this change in the 70s and 80s, rents stayed very cheap, right? While other parts of the city were only getting more expensive, including, notably for artists, who were finding themselves displaced from, you know, their old lodgings and studio spaces, let's say, in the village Mm -hmm. and in other parts of town. So many artists and writers and poets then relocated to this area along the Bowery. For example, into that old YMCA building that I mentioned at 222 Bowery moved William S. Burroughs in 1974. Although notably, Mark Rothko, the artist, had actually moved into that same building in the late 50s. Mm. And many other writers and artists would follow their lead. And of course, the music scene would arrive on the Bowery around the same time. Yeah, and especially in the northern stretches, you know, up near Astor Place, north of Houston. And this had already happened back in the 1960s, because in 1962, the Amato Opera House opened in an old mission house, right at 319 Bowery at East 2nd Street. Beautiful little space. The same year, the Bowery Lane Theater opened right across Bowery, right across the street from it. But it would be in the 1970s, a decade later in 1973, that a musician named Hilly Crystal would open an institution that would change the neighborhood's musical trajectory. That would be CBGB's, or as it was officially called, CBGB and OMFUG, standing for Country Bluegrass Blues and Other Music for Uplifting Gormandizers. And of course, despite having country bluegrass in its name, it would actually be better known as being one of the great temples of punk music in the United States. And for bringing in acts like the Ramones and Blondie and Patti Smith to the East Village and and into the Bowery. So essentially, by the 1980s, the Bowery is getting very complex. Yes, and, and even more complex into the 1990s. As this area continues to develop and gentrification ramps up on both sides of the Bowery. 
this old world on the Bowery that we've been discussing was rapidly disappearing. Although some artists and journalists were busy documenting the continued existence of a homeless population and flophouse scene in, in various mediums, including the audio documentary Sunshine Hotel, made in 1998 for NPR, by journalists Dave Isay and Stacey Abramson, which told the story of one flophouse, the Sunshine Hotel. And the next year, 1999, filmmaker Michael Dominic made a documentary called The Sunshine Hotel, also about the same lodging house. And both of these projects really underscored how the neighborhood was changing by the start of the new century. Yeah, and that change would really speed up in the early 2000s with even trendier restaurants and boutiques that were edging ever closer to the Bowery. In 2007, the new Museum of Contemporary Arts opened at Bowery in Stanton, just a couple doors north of the Bowery Mission. And the next year, in 2008, saw the opening of an upscale apartment complex at Bowery in Houston, which included a block-wide Whole Foods. But even if the area has changed and it's, and quote, cleaned up, there is still quite a significant need in this area. And right on the Bowery, it still exists today. And thankfully, there are groups that are still trying to assist this population. One of these is the Bowery Mission. And we're going to head now to the Bowery Mission to speak with Jason Storbakken, who serves as their senior manager of spiritual formation about how the mission functions today. Jason invited us up to his office on the balcony overlooking the mission's historic chapel. And while we were speaking with Jason, we were literally being bathed in light streaming in from the back of the mission's beautiful stained glass window, which was installed here at the mission's dedication in 1909. Windows which depict the parable of the prodigal son. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. Hi, thanks for having me. So could you tell us first just about how you got involved? What brought you to the Bowery Mission? So I was working in ministry in the South Bronx for a small nonprofit called Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice. And my friend reached out to me to ask if I was interested in writing grants for the Bowery Mission. So 11 years ago in 2010 is when I joined with uh, the staff at the Bowery Mission for the first year, I was doing more grant writing, it was administration, but I was coming down to the mission every morning from our corporate headquarters, which were then at Madison Avenue, but I was drawn down here for morning chapel, and so after about one year, I shifted from my role as the grant writer to the chapel director. So in today's show, we've been talking about how the Bowery changed and the various missions that have helped people out during this period referred to colloquially as Skid Row. What happens here exactly in the Bowery mission? We've talked about what it's done over the years and what other missions have done. But today, what happens when people come to the mission looking for help? So when you come into the, into the mission and there's the front desk, if you look up above, there's some um, stenciling, and it comes from Matthew 25. And that's essentially our DNA. And Jesus is saying, I was hungry, and you got me food. I was thirsty. I needed clothes. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was in prison, and you visited me. I was sick, and you comforted me. So we aim to do all these things. So we have a meal program that anyone can come and get a meal. Three times a day. 
Pre-pandemic, it was three times a day. We scaled it back to two times a day, and now the line is outside. We're about to come back inside in December for a meal, so we're working through that right now. And we do a clothing and shower program, and many times I or other staff have visited people in jail or prison, the tombs or uh, the Manhattan Detention Complex. Um, so we really try to live that out. We really try to live that kind of DNA out in this place, really meeting the real needs um, of the people. And Jason is the, the author of a 2019 book, Bowery Mission, Grit and Grace on Manhattan's Oldest Street, in which you also discuss a formation program that the mission has. So people coming are given the opportunity to go through a 30-day program. Yeah, so we have several tracks, several programs, men and women. We even have some youth programming up in the Bronx and out in the Poconos. The programs that I serve alongside most, there's the vocational and housing readiness track. It's for people who are coming in, maybe from the shelter system, maybe from the street, maybe from a bad breakup. And they're coming here and they're able to get a job or they already have a job. So that's the fast track. Then you have other people who come in, and they may have more um, mental health-related issues, which addiction is a subset of mental health. So people are struggling in those ways. And they come in for our more long-term program, which can be a year or a year and a half. So people arriving here at the Bowery's Red Doors are given assistance in terms of finding housing. Can people live here as well? Yeah, short-term. They can stay for three months to six months at this program site, at this campus. I mean, you are so well-versed in the history of this place, which is, which is, I think, very important and very key when you bring people in. I mean, you, you gave us a wonderful tour of the chapel. Has the mission changed or evolved or transformed in, say, from where it was, say, in the 1940s or 1950s? Um, and how have the the people who have come to seek help, have, have they changed? The people who come to the door of the Bowery Mission, are, the, are they different? That's a great question. There have definitely been shifts and changes through decades and seasons. When the doors first opened up, it was a lot of Civil War veterans. And the founder of the Bowery Mission, Albert Rolifson, was a chaplain in the Civil War with the Union. And so it was a lot, of, a lot of veterans from the Civil War. And then there was just a swarming of young men coming here looking for employment. And with the swarming of young men also came a lot of opportunities for debauchery and reveling in the, in the hedonism in the world. And that was a congregation. That was an audience in the community we began to serve. It shifted over the years, you know, Irish and Italian, but mostly white for many decades. And then around 1960, when they began to deinstitutionalize mental health facilities and basically put people who are suffering from mental health issues out on the street, there was a real deep rise in the number of people who have serious mental health issues that we began to serve. It was also in that time that black and brown people began to receive the services here too. The demographics began to shift. So over the years, our approaches shifted also for a long time. And even when I first started here, it was more about, you know, make a confession of faith or something like that, and then they're good to go. But we've come to realize that being more trauma-informed, I know that's a buzzword these days, but being aware of the wounds that people hold um, is really important. Understanding the pretext, what brought them to this point 
in allowing a lot of space for that healing to take place so that then they can hopefully uh, have the supports and resources they need to get back on track. Do you also, because I, I believe that when it started, it was only men. Are there also women who come to the Red Doors? There are. We even see families sometimes. And a lot of the time people think that the homeless are transient, mm-hmm. which means you see them once and you never see them again. But we have what I would call an embedded community. We have people who live right in this neighborhood mm-hmm. and they're not going too far. Some I've known my entire time here. It's just people get caught in situations and patterns and cycles and maybe don't always know that there's a way out. And most of the people who I've known for all of this time haven't actually yet come into a program. Some have, but it wasn't able to meet the needs that they had in that moment. Well, this inevitably leads to kind of the Bowery today, which is a much different world than it really has ever been, to be quite honest. It's a, quote, hot neighborhood, you know, a lot more upscale places to go, a very different place than it was, you know, even 30 years ago. New um, museums? Yeah, new museum yes. right next door, for instance. Um, yet the, but the mission remains a rescue. I mean, the, it's, the objective hasn't changed. What is the relationship with this new Bowery and the Bowery mission? Yeah, it's a great question. A good number of years ago, there was a picture on the cover of the New York Times in a show, the Bowery Mission and the New Museum. And the New Museum had a long line going in one direction to see Lady Gaga. And then in the other direction, coming into the Bowery, was our community. And basically, it was like these two worlds kind of colliding. Another kind of anecdote is years ago, I was in a local bodega coffee shop, and I heard two people talking. And one person said, if it wasn't for the Bowery Mission, we want to have all these homeless people here. And, and I was kind of getting a little worked up. I'm like, wait, what are, we, what are you talking about here? But another person spoke up before I was like, I work at the Bowery Mission, and you got it wrong. And the other person said, if it wasn't for the Bowery Mission, this neighborhood wouldn't be developing like it is. It's been like transforming lives for 150 years. So I was like, wow, I'm like, People are thinking deeply about this question. But in in the book, I was surprised to read that there are some partnerships, right? Some of these new places that we might see as fancy are also donating to the mission. Whole Foods is a big one. So They give you food. Every day. We get a van load of food from Whole Foods on the Bowery every morning before we open up for chapel, before, before 7 a.m. Right. So, that's so it's been, not as simple as just saying... Oh, bad gentrification. No, it's, it's very complex. And even the idea of gentrification, Ray Rivera from the Latino Pastoral Action Center up in the Bronx, he talks about gentrification. In a sense, it's like money. And, you know, money and gentrification are very closely related. And he says, it's neutral until you begin to do something with it. He said, you can have gentrifiers who come in and they really... Um, undermine the integrity of a community and push out stakeholders and you know mom and pop shops but then you can also have people who come into the community and they may have wealth but they're investing in the mom and pop shops and so there it's very complex again i am overwhelmed by this beautiful stained glass behind us and as i look at you i'm also looking over there at the beautiful pipe organ and at the gorgeous rafters of this building are there any challenges at all with you know performing this kind of work in a building that is so old and historic i mean it is like the oldest operating place pretty much on the bowery yeah so 1876 is when 
the building was built by Jonas Stoltz and his brother, a couple of undertakers and coffin makers. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't designed for even what we're doing. And when the Bowery Mission first moved in here, they were really coming out of tragedy. There was a fire, 11 people died in the dorm. So they moved in here and they made it state-of-the-art fireproof. Fireproof tiles and fireproof stone. I mean, you get up to the rafters, that's not fireproof anymore. So it might not be state-of-the-art fireproof anymore. It's also not ADA compliant. We're not accessible to people who have disabilities. They can come into the first floor, they can get meals, they can go to chapel, but if someone has a real disability, they won't be able to hike up four flights of stairs to stay in our dorm. So that kind of poses a challenge. Thankfully, we have other program sites and other campuses where we have elevators and are able to really meet the needs of people with disabilities. How has the mission changed since the beginning of the pandemic we kept serving but what we did was we had no no longer did we have inside dining so we began to serve at our door we continued to have programming but we had to limit the number of clients in the program so that we could have social distance dorms as well so there's a whole team that was developed to really work with the department of health to implement best practices. We're slowly moving into recovery. We've been doing chapels again for quite some time. So that was a big sign of recovery as well, just to say, come in. There's no incentive. You get your meal like everybody else. But if you want to come in for an hour Mm -hmm. and do maybe 30, 40 minutes of just resting in God's presence together, some spiritual conversation and community, People are invited into that. So that has been a gift, just to have people begin to return um, to the chapel. If our listeners wanted to help out here um, at, you know, during the Thanksgiving or during this holiday season or at any time, how can people from the outside help what's happening here or, generally speaking, help the situation get better for those who are living on the streets? There are many ways. Volunteering is a way. And of course, financial gifts is huge. It's what sustains the work. And also self-educating. Reading books that talk about these types of things, that really humanize the most vulnerable. Because so often, they can be demonized for one, or they can be invisibilized for another. And so we, as humans, often react to people who are hurting with either fear or ignorance. And so just doing that work of education, doing that work of cultivating compassion for other human beings, I think is a great start to really see people as people who have real life experiences and maybe are just going through a rough time or maybe generationally, there's been a lot of wounds that have been passed down. So really understanding it with that kind of empathetic perspective and being intentional Um, That's what I would really encourage and give heart towards and invite people into, to see people as people, that we're all in this together. Well, thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining us today and for helping educate us on the issues that exist today and what the mission is doing about it. Yes, thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining us. It's my gift to be with the Bowery Boys. <laughs> the Bowery Boys on the Bowery Mission. Thanks for finally um, allowing this to happen. Oh, we greatly appreciate it. I love it. Thank you so much for the gift of being uh, here today with you.
want to thank Jason and the Bowery Mission for inviting us in and for giving us this fascinating tour of the chapel, which has been in operation for over 100 years. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for photos from inside the Bowery Mission and historical photos from along the Bowery. As well as some of the films that we mentioned on the show today. We'd like to say thank you again to all of those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com, where your small contributions each month help us put together the show, help us with the research of the show, even help us make the show sound better. And yes, we literally just bought new microphones because of our patrons. Yes, we, of course, provide audio extras um, to our patrons, and this week you'll get the full interview with Jason at the Bowery Mission because he was quite an interesting fellow, and we had a wonderful conversation. You only got to hear a small part of it in the show, but our patrons will get to hear the whole thing. So join us on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. Where you'll join fellow patrons... Tyson J. from New York, Matthew B. from New Jersey, and additional patrons John M., Ein R., Shane B., Nancy W., Natalie H., and Christine W. Thank you for joining the Bowery Boys. Now, Greg, you mentioned at the top of the show that we would have a special announcement at the end of the show about this new spinoff. Yes. So if you remember back on our Edith Wharton show, mm-hmm. it's a very popular show with many of you, you may remember social and culinary historian Carl Raymond, who joined us on that show. He was also on a ghost story show a couple years ago involving the Merchant House. Well, Carl will be the host of a brand new show produced by Tom and I, a show called The Gilded Gentleman. Yes, every two weeks, Carl will be diving into some aspect of the Gilded Age, the Gilded Age in New York, the Belle Epoque in Paris, and Victorian London. He will be exploring stories about society, culture, architecture, food, fashion, design, music, and literature of this era in these three wonderful cities. The first two episodes of The Gilded Gentleman will drop on December 7th. You're going to hear more about it from us. But if you want to go ahead and subscribe, you can look for it wherever you get your podcast. Just look for the words Gilded Gentleman. So that is our exciting news. We hope that you're excited too. Head over to The Gilded Gentleman and subscribe today. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.